Chapter Twelve of East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume Two, by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve: Burying and Giving in Marriage. Chuturbuj Murarji presents his best compliments to blank and requests the favour of their company to a nautch party in honour of the marriage of his son Chururodas at Javerborg on the Kalbadevi road on Monday the seventeenth December eighteen eighty three from nine to twelve p.m. In response to this invitation, boldly printed on a white card with the imprint of the Am E Jamshid Printing Press Co. Limited, in scarcely less large type at the bottom, I found myself in the Calva Davy Road at ten thirty, when it might reasonably be supposed the fun was at the height of its fastness and fury. The giver of the party is one of the wealthiest and most popular natives in Bombay the road in which the hall is situated is the centre of hindu life consequently there was much excitement in the neighbourhood and the approaches to the hall were crowded much as is the doorway of a london church when a fashionable wedding is taking place but it became clear on entering that all the life and excitement were outside within ranged on benches leaving a broad gangway in the centre were some sixty or seventy natives chiefly dressed in cool loose-fitting white robes most of them had a bunch of roses in hand the unfortunate flowers being tightly tied as if the design were to make a ligature they had suffered the further indignity on presentation to each guest of being sprinkled with powerful rose-water one of the elders of the family carried round a large dish of betel-nuts made up in lime-leaves the whole of which one was expected to put in his mouth forthwith an expectation cheerfully fulfilled by the natives at the lower end of the hall stood the nautch dancer gorgeously arrayed in costly cloak of crimson silk loaded with gold lace and embroidery i suppose a hundred pounds could not have purchased this raiment besides which the lilies of the field would timidly bend their heads the lady could afford such extravagance, since the fee paid for her attendance was a hundred and twenty pounds. This is unusually high, but the host was rich, and she a prima donna among nautch girls, having come down specially from Benares. One pace behind her stood the orchestra, composed of three men. One incessantly beat a tom-tom, a second played a kind of violin, and the third played with infinite skill a pair of small bells. The girl, in a harsh, unmelodious voice, sang a monotonous recital of a love-chase. The general idea of the remont was the disappearance of a lover and the guest by the faithful maiden. From time to time she got on his track, when a little liveliness was introduced into her motions and voice, but for the most part she saw him not, and her dollar visibly affected the spirits of the patient audience, who chewed their betel-nut reflectively and looked unutterably bored. The chief victim was the bridegroom, a boy of thirteen who sat near the head of one of the front rows, dressed in jacket of richly brocaded satin and ruby velvet trousers. In strings around his neck and glistening all over his robe 
were diamonds worth forty thousand pounds but these carried no comfort to his seared soul it was all very well for his father beaming on the guests that came and went and seeing in the influential assemblage tokens of respect and regard for himself it was not bad for the uncle flitting hither and thither with his dish of betel-nuts on hospitable cares intent it was pretty well for the bride aged eleven who had long since been put to bed and was probably dreaming of a new doll nor need the guests have looked so like the famous party in the parlour all silent and all damned this was for most of them a first appearance they had dropped in casually might drop out when the thing became absolutely unbearable but for the bridegroom the business had commenced on the previous friday night and would not conclude till the thursday night following there would be some diversion on the morrow since then he would set forth for the bride's house at the head of a goodly procession and would make believe to bear the coy maiden off in spite of the tears of her mother and the threats of her father but at night from nine to twelve this dreary business would go on again with the solemnly pirouetting nautch girl her waving hands her mechanical glances to right and left and her harsh voice uplifted in pursuit of a lover too shrewd to allow himself to be caught there would be the tom-tom man the man with the fiddle and the man with the bells playing without cessation there would be the uncle going round with the betel-nuts the stream of guests smilingly entering and gladly going as he thought of these things the bridegroom's heavy eyelids drooped from sheer weariness and he yawned till he shook the garland of jewels that glistened on his neck i should like to have taken him out into the back yard for a game of marbles or for ten ecstatic minutes with a top but fate had called him to higher duties and with gallant attempts to keep his eyelids propped up and to suppress a yawn he sat it out the company in the hall was exclusively composed of men but through closely latticed windows at the upper end glimpses were caught of black eyes and white teeth and there was heard the murmur of female voices on a cross-bench at the top of the hall was a rajah a handsome man splendidly dressed who with hand resting on the jewelled hilt of his sword sat impassive as far as his body was concerned but his bright black eyes were never still roaming restlessly over this company and taking in every detail shortly after eleven the nautch girl began to wake up she had caught sight of the judiciously retreating lover and uplifting her voice proclaimed the happy chance as she sang she advanced with slowly regulated paces up the hall the orchestra following her and the tom-tom man with well simulated interest crying ha ha when the maiden reiterated i see him now the climax seemed to have arrived and having come to see a nautch dance i expected the dance was about to begin but except that the girl waved her hands and body and now and then slowly revolved there was no more motion than during the earlier portion of the performance 
there is a vague notion in the western mind that nautch is the indian rendering of naughty the worst thing that could be said against this nautch dance by one of the chief professors in india was that it was unapproachably and inexpressibly dull as to decency the girl wore more clothes than would fit out the inhabitants of a japanese village her heavily embroidered robe nearly reached the ground displaying below a pair of trousers so long that they showed only the silver-ringed toes and draggled away at the heels fully a foot too long there were apparently no arrangements for pockets for the girl kept her handkerchief in a convenient place between the two small drums that form the tom-tom she made no scruple when necessity arose of taking this out using it and returning it but always with graceful movements of the body and pretty waving of small shapely hands jewelled to the finger-tips by eleven thirty we had had enough and left amid a succession of yawns from the bridegroom which threatened to have a fatal effect and so bring the proceedings to a premature close on the next day following the natural sequence of services in the prayer-book i went to see a parsee funeral the towers of silence stand on a hill overlooking bombay and the long stretch of water known as back bay the situation is one of the most favoured in the neighbourhood of the city and the hill is dotted with the houses of european residents who do not too much like the contiguity of these awesome towers but the parsees were here first and it cannot be said that either their burial place or their funeral service is obtrusive from the road below the towers are invisible and only a vulture slowly sailing through the sultry air reminds one of their propinquity there are five towers in all made from a common model they are twenty-five feet high the diameter being seventy-five feet within the roofless tower is a sloping platform marked out in three divisions within the outer ring are placed the corpses of men women are laid in grooves formed in the second circle and children in the third with the exception of the top always open to the heavens there is only one entrance to the tower this is by a doorway made in the thick walls through which the corpse-bearers enter and deposit the naked body in its appointed place as soon as they retire the vultures who have been waiting for their meal impatient of the scant ceremonies that precede its setting forth swoop down and begin their work no human eye has beheld the ghastly spectacle the silence and the solitude of the towers are broken only by the presence and hideous bustle of the birds of prey but it is known that within half an hour of the bodies being laid out in the tower nothing is left but the skeleton eight days later by which time the bones are thoroughly dried the corpse-bearers return take up the relics and cast them in a well in the centre of the tower where in process of years they become decomposed and absolutely nothing is left of what was once man or woman for two hundred years the parsees living together in bombay have here found their last resting-place their dust mingling in a common tomb undivided in death as they were bound together in life 
yet in all these years it has not been found necessary to clear out the wells by reason of overcrowding it is customary for a man or woman to be buried in the particular tower where those of their own family traced back in many cases for two centuries have been given to the vultures one tower is set apart for special purposes and is the least frequented here are buried members of the parsee sect who have been guilty of heinous crimes or in some way become outcasts from their race it would be shocking that a parsee should be buried in the earth a criminal belonging to the sect must have parsee burial after the fashion in vogue since the time of cyrus but the bones of honest men and women may not be contaminated by mixture with his in a temple commanding all the towers the sacred fire lit two hundred years ago is still kept burning and is mathematically set so that the light may shine through an aperture in each of the towers we had the advantage of having the place and the mode of funeral explained by the secretary a genial person in spectacles white gown and bright red trousers who spoke excellent english he explained that the parsees regarded cremation as a preferable means of disposing of dead bodies but they worshipped fire and could not set for their deity the performance of this last office whilst admitting that the process was naturally revolting to the western mind he powerfully justified it on the score of sanitariness so careful are the parsees that earth shall not be polluted by the absorption of matter from dead bodies that in connection with the well containing the decomposed bones they have an elaborate system of drainage which carries off whatever may issue direct to the sea whatever else may be said of the system it is certainly cheap five rupees covering funeral costs as we stood in the grounds a funeral came by in accordance with custom the service had commenced at the house of the deceased where friends and relations had gathered and prayer had been said it is enjoined by the parsee ritual that whatever the intervening distance may be the body must be carried on the shoulders of men from the bed to the tower they passed us at a swinging pace four men bearing the body on a light bier shoulder high the body was simply covered from head to foot with a white cloth all the mourners were dressed in white and those not carrying the bier walked two and two each couple holding a handkerchief between them i asked the secretary what was the significance of this but he did not know could only surmise in no very clear way that it was a fortification against impurity it was ordained by zoroaster and that was enough for him if not sufficient for a mind fresh to the inquiry before the procession walked an old man leading a white dog with curly tail and not in the best condition i thought he had caught the mongrel trespassing within the cemetery and was leading it to the gate with intent ignominiously to thrust it forth but i learned that a dog is an indispensable figure in the funeral scarcely less so than the corpse itself when the bearers brought the body to the foot of the tower on the topmost edge of which the vultures sat a black foreboding line the cloth was removed from the head 
the dog brought up and effort made to cause him to look into the dead face this done the corpse-bearers took up the body and disappeared within the trap-door and the dog was led away here again except that it was ordained in the ritual and had been practised for thousands of years my philosopher and friend in the baggy red trousers was at a loss for explanation some hold he said whilst warning me against accepting it as anything but a surmise that the dog's eyes have the power of attracting to themselves all impurity in well-regulated households the dog is brought in to look upon the face of the dying man or woman before the last struggle comes just as in another church extreme unction is administered as the dying eyes of the pious catholic look last upon the cross so ere earthly things fade for ever from his closing eyes the parsee looks on the face of a dog the dog must be white in colour and to be perfect should be marked with yellow spots a rare phenomenon reserved for the betterment of the eternal chances of the rich we saw the dog come back and no longer wondered at his melancholy aspect what a life it must lead to be taken out at frequent intervals expecting that it is going for a scamper through the fields or peradventure to be led forth to a bountiful meal and always to be brought up short to see the cloth uncovered to think that perhaps after all here is the meal and once again only the pale dead face and the glassy eyes i asked the secretary did they live long but he did not know the corpse-bearers having disappeared within the tower the mourners quickly retraced their steps and ranged themselves outside the temple on the side facing the tower they stood there mute and motionless for several minutes suddenly the silence was broken by the sound of a bell the black line circling the top of the tower swooped downward with hoarse cries and the rustle of great wings and the mourners took up the concluding portion of the service for what cannot strictly be called the burial of the dead when we left the place a quarter of an hour later the black ring on the top of the whitewashed tower was beginning to form again the vultures slowly sailing up were resuming their old positions many of them standing on one leg seemed to be picking their teeth with the other claw as with contentment born of the dinner they lazily surveyed the scene bombay busy and bustling still containing fair supplies of plump parsees and beyond the quiet sea taking on roseate tints in the light of the setting sun End of chapter twelve